Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and we have a very special episode today. My co-host today is Kathleen. You all know her, Kathleen Vanderwill. She's been many times on Opera for Everyone. And then we have a very special guest. But before we meet our very special guest, I want to just do a shout out for constructive criticism. Kathleen's blog about all media, all books and <laughs> movies and TV shows and everything you might want to entertain yourself with. Mm-hmm. Kathleen, just tell us why it's amazing, because it well, is. I watch everything so you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I write over on Substack. So it's constructivecriticism.substack.com. Check it out. It's I write about what's happening mostly in television, but books and movies sneak in there too. So yeah, check it out. Yeah. Your writing always has such great analysis. Everyone, I recommend Kathleen Vanderwill, Constructive Criticism. And now, I've kept you in suspense long enough. <laughs> Our special guest today is an amazing woman, multi-talented. She's got a new project out that we're going to talk about, but I just want to give a little background on Lisa Reagan. She sang with the National Opera in Washington, D.C. for 20 years. She's been a professor teaching students to sing, teaching music. She's a composer. She writes beautiful music. And she has this magical way of bringing in collaborators that make her work so beautiful. So we're going to talk about her recent project in the beginning of the show here. And then that's going to be followed by a discussion of the Verdi opera, La Forza del Destino. And we're so glad to have Lisa to help us with that. But first of all, Kathleen and I would like to welcome Lisa Reagan to Opera for Everyone. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Lisa, we're thrilled. We're thrilled. I was so glad when we were connected with each other. The first thing I did was listen to this new album, Mm. What We Need Is Here. It seems to be the product of a rich background in music and music of lots of different varieties. Could you tell us how you would describe this album, What We Need Is Here? Well, I love the way you said that. Lots of expressions of music colors um, that I pulled upon. I I grew up in a classical world. I started on piano when I was four, and my mother loved classical music, so that was playing a lot in my house as a child. And then, and I I went all the way through college studying classical music. I was a piano major and and a voice major, and I mostly did musical theater in college, but then after college, I started training for opera, and I ended up singing with the Washington National Opera for many years. <laughs> you, make it, you make it sound so simple. And I ended up with the National <laughs> Opera. It must have been yeah. a little more complicated than that. No, it was terrifying. And every year they made us re-audition. Every <gasps> feb- February, we had to re-audition oh, for wow. the company. And it was always, always scary. And every June, we would get our contracts. So you'd wait all that time to know oh, no. how many operas you got in for the next season. Wow. And you just had to like hang out and wait and hope that you got into the ones you wanted to be in. And But I feel like hearing the orchestra playing live, it, it's so incredible to sing in the opera because the music's wafting up from the orchestra pit. And it's so incredibly, was so inspiring. And I think hearing all of those different operas and orchestrations, hearing a lot of classical music influenced me in my writing and in my composing. I also am a great lover of jazz, and I sang a lot of jazz, even though I was singing opera. I kind of did both. 
and that mm. that influenced my the color palette for composing. Yeah, I like groups like Dead Can Dance, and you know, I just like very unusual combinations, uh, like tonal clusters. Always loved music theory. I loved being able to create tension with the sound, and I always compose on the piano. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like when I decided to do these poems, I wanted to use sound as a way to transport you into the world of how that poem made me feel. Right. We should point out that this album, every single song on the album is based on a poem. These are classical, largely, but not entirely well-known works of poetry from prominent poets. Right. I just decided to comb through poems I'd known even from my childhood and ones that I sort of treasured through my life and poets that I love like Yeats and all of them that's on this album. And to kind of go into their world and think about what was going on with them when they were writing this poem and what inspired them, who their muses were, and try to think about, and my friend put it this way, I thought it was so clever. He said, it's kind of like Narnia's wardrobe. (laughs) You know, you can go through and it can just be a bunch of coats Mm -hmm. or it, it can be a whole other world. And so I tried to use the notes that I could pull on to create almost like a soundscape or a sound palette for the words to honor what I thought their poem was about. I think we should hear a sample of what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I personally would love to listen to one of the, the Yeats poems. Maybe he wishes for the cloths of heaven. Great. Oh, yeah. Beautiful.
you, Lisa. That was beautiful. We just listened to He Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven, which is an adaptation of a poem by W.B. Gates off of Lisa's new album, What We Need Is Here. Mm. Now, I noticed that you've spoken about your love for poems that specifically feature nature as a theme, and even some of your poems that are more ostensibly about romance are also really inflected with with nature metaphors. Why are you drawn to that kind of poetry in particular? You know, I can say it's because I'm Irish. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good enough answer. <laughs> that that could that could be as simple as that. Yep. I think you know what I did? I when I was thinking about this project, I thought, I'm just gonna read poems and when I feel my heart open or I feel something like moving in my my physicality, you know, like inspiration. Mm-hmm. I thought that I'm going to pay attention to that. And if that I keep feeling that way about this poem, that's probably going to make it on the album. I love nature. I love to be out in nature. I find it very healing. I feel like maybe even, I don't know if it's like now more than ever, but I, I do feel like as a whole, maybe world, at least a country, is not as in touch with nature as we used to be as humans. And I think that's something that causes us grief and hardship. I feel Mm -hmm. like people need to spend more time just looking at the flowers, just walking in a field, just being outside or being in a forest and just being quiet and just letting the wind make a sound through the trees. For me, it just, it brings me such joy and peace and comfort. It's like a balm for me. So I'm attracted to to anything like like poems about nature. And of course, love. Well, for the romantic poets, it was really intertwined, that love and nature. Absolutely. Speaking of romantic poets, Keats is featured here as well. Yes. I think this was the first poem I ever memorized was this was Bright Star by Keats. So I was really enraptured with how you adapted it. It's such a beautiful and so well known, too, that it's nice to see it kind of in a in a different light to hear it sung. Oh, good. I'm glad you had that reaction. I kept thinking, and I was talking to Jamshid Sharifi, he's my arranger, and we worked on these together, and I'd send him files of what, because it was during COVID, so we're just sending things back and forth, of what, like, I think maybe it could go this direction. It needs to feel celestial. It needs to feel, like, otherworldly, and I think we got there. I I, I think we got there. (laughs) But I love this poem, and, of course, the tragedy of it, you know, too. Of course. It mm. it makes sense for you to be drawn to a tragically romantic poem and to be drawn to opera. Yes. I told you, man, I can't help it. <laughs> Are you going to explain for us what the tragedy was with poor Keats? Kat, do you want to explain it? Yeah, I mean, sure. I'll, I'll start and then and Lisa, please jump in. I, oh, sure. Um, I mean, Keats wrote this to the woman he loved when he was dying of tuberculosis mm-hmm. and he would die very young. Keats died in his 20s after writing a considerable amount of beautiful poetry, many letters, which we still have. But he called his, the the woman he loved, Fanny Brawn, he called her his bright star. So it's a poem that's both hopeful about the very fact of being in love and, and sees the wonder in that. But also there's so much tragedy because he knew he was dying when he wrote it too. And he knew he was leaving her a legacy of poetry. But but not much else. Right. And so they met, I think he was actually living, like renting a part of maybe a family house. And 
-hmm. they ended up falling in love and she was of a higher station than him. And he felt that he had to get established, published and be an established poet and or author in order to be worthy of her. But the truth was they, they greatly loved each other. And he went off to Italy. I think, I can't remember exactly why. I think it was for the air. They, they would send oh, you yeah. to Italy if you had tuberculosis because you could That's get right. some more time. Yeah. Right. So they didn't get to be together when he died. And he was 25. It was just so sad. And so the song I felt was celestial in the sense that he was, it even says it in the poem, where I like the bright star, steadfast, and I could always be with you. And I tried to pull that idea as much as I could into the longing in the music.
Oh, Lisa, thank you so much for giving us that beautiful poem set to music. It's I know poetry is powerful, but music is powerful too. I mean, that's what we know about opera. Yes. So this is just a, a beautiful project that you've created. Mm-hmm. And I will just as a side note say that if you all are able to look up Lisa Reagan, you can do it on lisareagan.com, wonderful website. And there's a huge detail about this particular album, what we need is here. But Lisa, in other streaming services, I found so many albums that you created, so many different directions that you've taken your music. It's astounding. Two Christmas albums, among yes. other things. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I love creating, obviously. And I'm inspired by a lot of different things and different artists. I just think it's fun. Like on the album Marcana, I liked fusing some classical pieces with taking it sort of in that crossover world. It was just kind of fun to do, actually. And you have a chant album as well, which is just entrancing. Thank you. I have two chant albums, and they're both in Sanskrit, more specifically Gurmukhi, but some are Sanskrit. And then there's a Rumi poem in one of them. And then we even did an Alleluia, which I love that. And then we chanted in Latin. I think that song turned out really cool. Uh, chanting has always been a big part of my life. I've, I've loved to do yoga. And part of ah. the yoga that I love to do is Kundalini yoga. And in Kundalini yoga, you do a lot of chanting. So I just did years of chanting and felt it was powerful and meaningful to me. I have a girlfriend that I did the chant album with. She and I sang in the Washington National Opera together for 20 years. And we did our mm-hmm. master's degree together. So oh, wow. we just thought, and we both did yoga. So we just like, hey, let's do, <laughs> you know, let's do this together. That'll be fun. And it was. Beautiful. Thank you. So I, I actually, I'm going to change gears a little bit and ask you the process of matching up the music that you've written to go with these poems. How, is that, do you find it easy? Does, the, no. does it just pop into your head or do you make a lot of false starts or what's your process there? Well, here's what happened. My colleague at school gave me a Wendell Berry book. I was reading through it the Sabbath day. I think it was the exact book. And then it was um, The Peace of Wild Things. And I just loved it so much. I, I just loved it. I just read it over and over again. And I kept hearing the melody in my head that uh, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests, that, that whole melody line. So I just went over to the piano and I, and I wrote it down. And I always used my voice memo on my phone. I just kind of recorded it. Then I read another berry poem, The Wild Geese, and I heard another melody. And I was like, what is happening? So and I recorded it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it, was, it was funny. So it was always the second half of the, the second part of the poem. It was almost like that was the chorus. And the first mm. part of the poem I had trouble with, you know, because the piece of wild thing starts, it doesn't start, I go and lie down with the wood drake rest. That's not the beginning of the poem. The beginning of the poem is when despair grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound and fear of what my life or my children's lives may be. Mm. Then he says, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests. So he sets it up like, when this happens to me, this is my refuge. So for some reason on the Barry poems, I could always hear the second half, but not the first. But if that was really what inspired me to do the whole project. Then when I started writing, let's say even what we just heard, Bright Star, that song was very hard for me to write. I felt like it was such an important poem and his heart was so in it and it was the last thing he wrote to his love mm-hmm. that it needed to be so honoring of his heart. So 
the process is me just sitting at the piano, thinking about the poem, like meditating on the poem. How does that poem make me feel in my heart, in my emotions? And then how do I get there musically to create sound images in a way or soundscapes, like I said before, that will make other people feel that too? That's sort of, I guess, my process. It's not so, (laughs) you know, it's not so easy because I've always written to lyrics or my own poems. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different thing because the poem itself is already a song in a way. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to wrap yourself into their rhythm. So a lot of it was me just speaking it over and over again, just speaking it and starting to feel the natural rhythm of how that poem wanted to be read. You know what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I also think it's important to remember, if we're talking about opera, most librettists for operas, they're poets. Yes, yes, yes. And it, they have to be poets to, mm-hmm. to make it work with the meter and everything that the mm-hmm. composers require. And so it's, it's interesting because the librettists, of course, are writing for what the composer is asking, whereas you are taking existing poems and finding right. the music in them almost or creating right. the music that that speaks to your heart. And then I think by extension, you're speaking to a lot of people's hearts with music that you've created when you listen to the, to the songs you've made. Oh, I hope so. And I love what you said about finding. It's finding the notes. That's what happens. I mean, it's like you're just trying to channel, you know, mm-hmm. from somewhere the muses come in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's almost a little like a, like a collaboration between the music of Frost and the music of Lisa Reagan a little bit. You know, you hear his you've chosen you've chosen poetry that has a really strong sense of rhythm too. Yes. So I, I can I can see how that would would inspire you rather than some more modern poetry that's that's more atonal, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right about that because I did look at some po- I mean I thought, well, I'm gonna look at, I don't know, E. E. Cummings or something. Right. And then I kept trying to figure out how I can make that into a song. I'm sure I could, you know, eventually, but it seemed like it didn't work with this sort of romantic love and nature idea. So I just chose to to go more towards the things of my heart. But you you really are right about having a collaboration because the poem does have its own. It's kind of its its own song already, Mm -hmm. in a way. Well, I think it's for people who don't, and honestly, I'm not a huge poetry reader. I'm confessing right now. (laughs) For me, this is a great way to really spend time with a poem because I can listen to these songs over and over again. And that really helps me get into the poetry. For instance, you mentioned Frost, Kathleen. Mm -hmm. I woke up, I literally woke up this morning with the song that you wrote to Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening in my head. And I'm singing them and I've, I've missed a few words in my memory, but that whole song was just playing over and over in my brain. That's awesome. It's an interesting thing too. When you put a melody to a poem or, or lyrics or whatever, you do remember it better. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I used to do that when I was trying to remember lines in high school. <laughs> When Me I was too. in theater. Me too. I would I would sing them. Yeah. I would sing them because you would mm-hmm. yeah. Don't we all sing the ABC song to exactly. remember the alphabet? <laughs> Do you remember 50 Nifty United States? Do you remember that one? 50 Nifty United States from 13 original colonies. All the schoolhouse rock stuff, right? Yeah. Yes. 
I think that's why I liked musical theater too and Shakespeare. The rhythm of it, you could just, it was easier to memorize for Mm -hmm. sure. Oh, for sure. Well, maybe we should get this song stuck in everybody else's heads and, and listen to it. Absolutely. Lisa, I think we're going to have to just tell everyone to listen to that over and over again, find it 
at lisareagan.com. Oh, by the way, at that website, you have this amazing book, or it's a visual book with so much detail, every poem written out, every single word of the poems, but also little YouTube clips where you explain the various elements that go into creating these these beautiful songs. So go ahead and get that song stuck in your head, everyone. I It's been in mine, and I'm very happy enjoying it. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much. What we need is here, Lisa Reagan. Well, when Lisa and I first met, I said to her, I am so excited to talk about the work that you're doing now, and I'm also excited to have someone who's been in many operas over the years. Let's pick an opera. And when I mentioned various ones that we might do, Lisa got very happy about the one I picked, La Forza del Destino. What an amazing opera. I mean, Verdi, you can't beat it. (laughs) I think one one of the most dramatic operas I think I've ever seen as well. And and you and I, we've we've seen some dramatic, we've done what, three adaptations of the Faust story, but even this, I think, tops it all. <laughs> Kathleen, we have. This is, a, Verdi really put this in a special category with Don Carlos, for example, that these were intense musical dramas for him. In fact, he he withheld this one from a lot of opera companies because he didn't think during his lifetime, he didn't think they could do it justice. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. One thing I thought was fun when you suggested La Forza is that was the first opera I ever did with the Washington National Opera. That was my very first time to be on the stage there with the company. What a way to start. Boy, no kidding. That being my first opera at the Kennedy Center at such a professional high level Mm. opera company, I had just never heard voices that were that good in person and standing next to these people. And the sound was. I just remember being jaw-dropped, in awe, overwhelmed with emotion, and just so grateful that I was able to be right there, hearing this amazing music, the orchestration, singing this gorgeous opera. Yeah. So when you said you wanted to do this one, I thought, oh, that will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a way to start. And what, what a recommendation from you to go see opera in person. I mean, I love talking about opera and I love Mm -hmm. playing selections of operas and recordings, but there is a power to going to see the live opera. A lot of people will use our show, Opera for Everyone, to listen to us talk through the plot and play a few of the pieces uh, or excerpts of the pieces. And then you go see a whole opera. And sometimes you can't see it in person. And sometimes you want to see the whole opera through streaming because you can see productions that you wouldn't get a chance to see because they're long gone or they're too far away or you just can't get there. But live opera is amazing and seeing operas in their entirety. Recommend both of them to people. (laughs) That's not what we do. We're here to help you understand some of what went into making the opera and some of the details that honestly, when I see opera the first time, I will miss things that I catch the second or third time or when I read the libretto. Mm -hmm. So That's part of what's going on here. Well, this opera, La Forza del Destino, is by Giuseppe Verdi. It's later in his career. It's the opera he writes after Un Bala and Mascara, which I never quite pronounce right because I don't speak Italian, but (laughs) (laughs) but I I love Italian. (laughs) And interestingly, it it doesn't premiere in one of the Italian opera houses. It premieres at the St. Petersburg Imperial Theater in Russia. Mm -hmm. Tsar Alexander II was the one who actually commissioned him 
A tenor, Enrico Tamberlink, wrote to Verdi saying, I've got a great proposition for you. Write whatever you want. They'll make it happen here in St. Petersburg. <laughs> it was a bit of an effort to finally land on this story and write this opera, but it premieres in 1862 in Russia and later is revised for a performance at La Scala in Milan, 1869. So significant revision. Verdi himself does it with the original librettist, Piave, who he's worked with on other shows as well. I and mean, they bring in another, another fellow to help out also because Piave was a little bit ill at that point. But uh, that's just some background on the creation of this. But 1862, 1869. And just as a putting a pin in things, we talk often about Verdi and his interest in Italian nationalism. It's 1861 when we have the unification of Italy. So you can argue there are some uh, very patriotic moments in this opera. It's not the same issue for him that it was, say, when he wrote Nabucco Mm -hmm. many years earlier. And if I could jump in with a few more resonances of that time period, too. um, One of the things that really struck me when I watched this opera was, as we've hinted at before, that it's it's very epic in scope. It's it's even more so, I would say, epic in scope than some of the other operas that we've um, seen. The feelings are so, so big. (laughs) They always are in opera. And, and it's a long opera. It's very convoluted in terms of plot. And one of the things that stuck out to me when I noticed the the premiere date is that's the same year that Hunchback of Notre Dame is published. Oh. Another sort of French epic with a convoluted mm-hmm. plot and very dramatic emotions. And the Russian connection we see 1865 is when War and Peace begins to be serialized by Tolstoy. This is the height of Dickens. This is um, a time when we're seeing Russia really get in on that sort of literary epic that is so popular in France and in England. And opera ties it all together. Opera runs through these books. And, um, yeah. and obviously, we know that many of the source materials came from published works at the time, including this one. Yeah. And this one is from a country you didn't even mention yet. <laughs> the original play comes from Spain. Exactly. Everybody's getting in on it. And there's a there's a German, there's a scene adapted from a Schiller play that's in here as well. And so it's yeah. Yeah, a very pan-European project. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was interesting because it Verdi took him a while to land on this, but he loved the high drama, the epic nature of it. And um I'll mention when we talk through the story, I'll mention the scene that comes from the Schiller play, because it's not just the scene. Piave, who was the librettist didn't write that one. It was Maffei. He never was uh, wrote a full libretto for Verdi, but he came up, those of you who listened to the Macbeth Verdi that Kathleen and I talked about, Piave was a librettist, but Maffei came up a lot in that discussion because Maffei wrote some bits and Verdi was always extremely partial to him, even though he wasn't ever named the librettist for his operas. It's a kind of an interesting relationship there. I found when I first listened to this opera that the overture was somewhat recognizable to me, I think because I had heard there is a motif that is is fairly well known in this overture that it's called the fate motif. And obviously the the title of this opera, we're talking about the forces of, of destiny, the forces of fate. And that feeling that fate is what's driving all of the things that happen to you, not your own choices, is very strong in this opera. And it begins with this beautiful fate motif. So we'll listen to a little bit of that. 
That was from the overture to La Forza del Destino by Giuseppe Verdi. And we are ready now to talk about this story. Those, those three notes at the very beginning of the overture, those are the fate motif. And they are associated with the main character, the, the prima donna, Leonora. And we'll meet her right here in the very first scene of the opera. When you look at all these roles that the heroines played, they usually have pure hearts. They love. And a lot of times that's the one thing that takes them down is their their pure love. And they'll die for love. And the stakes are very high for them. And a lot of these characters, they are very pure hearted and really want the best for everyone, I've noticed. It doesn't end well for them, but you know. <laughs> Yeah. You have to be a little selfish in opera, I think, for things to end well for you yeah, if yeah. you're a woman. These poor girls, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and she's really she's really torn, too, between, a, I would say, a, another motif that's familiar, which is love of the father and the love of the lover. Correct. We've seen that in other operas before, and that's how it opens, is we first meet her talking to her father, and mm-hmm. we see the goodness of her character through her interactions with him first. Right, that sets it up. It's interesting, the play that it's based on, Don Alvaro, it's called. He's the, he's the leading man in this opera, the tenor, of course. <laughs> in Don Alvaro, the, the play, the very first thing that happens is there's a fortune teller. And the fortune teller explains that her mother read the fortune of this infant, Leonora, when she was mm. born. And she cried, the fortune teller cried when Leonora was born because she knew she was born to suffer. Mm. And that's what that overture is telling us, even if we don't know it. Mm. It's never a good idea to know the fate of anybody ahead of time. (laughs) Because you know the fate, it's never a story where it's like, we read the fate of the little baby and she's going to be so happy and everything's going to be great. (laughs) It's always... You're right about that, aren't you? <laughs> At least those don't make it into the stories. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like the Sleeping Beauty. She's She's got this terrible curse upon her. And she's just a baby. Yes, it's interesting to think about human nature, how we, we love that. You wouldn't write an opera about the little girl that was going to have a great, happy life, right? Yeah. yeah. It's so true. It's so true. That story is just not interesting to us. No, it's not interesting to us. And of course, there's the question, too, which this whole opera is going to raise is, how much does it change our choices when we know our destiny ahead of time, too? If she's destined to suffer, how does that affect how the people around her act and how she acts? And we're not entirely clear as an audience what she knows about mm-hmm. her own ill fate. But what we do see is what you just said is this tension between her love for her father, which is deep and real, mm-hmm. and her love for Alvaro, for this man, which is deep and real. And the father opens by commending her for rejecting him. He's a no good nobody. You don't need him. Thank you for being a dutiful daughter. And that really gets to her. Those sound sort of like overused trite phrases, but for her, they're deeply meaningful. And we quickly learn that she and her maid who's nearby, Cora, she also is in on the plan. Leonora has plans to elope this very night with Don Alvaro, her lover. And the maid is like, okay, get your stuff together. Your father has just walked out of the room. Hurry, hurry, hurry. We got to keep him safe. And she's hesitating. She's unsure. She wants to be a good daughter, but she wants to be with the man she loves. 
And there's a the sense here too of of fate not just being this is your destiny because of who you are, but but it's in your blood in a way. Like she's tied to her father through this blood bond, but also Don Alvaro is a foreigner. That's why he isn't good enough for Leonora. There's some hint that he's from South America. He's from a Spanish colony and thus perhaps not a true Spaniard. Also some light you know, racism to start everything off here. That's true. I think he had Inca in him. Yeah. He did, right. but we don't learn that until the third act. Yeah. That is hidden from us. In There's fact, no spoilers in opera. <laughs> that, no, I know. If there are no spoilers in opera. We'll talk about it all here. But the characters at this stage mm-hmm. don't know what his actual parentage. And that's part of what the father objects to. If he's not ashamed, why won't he tell us who his Mm -hmm. people are? Why won't he tell us about his parentage? And if he's not telling us, that means it's no good. It's no good for you. He's beneath us. He's below us. It's not okay because they're all Dons here and she's Donna. These are all elevated Mm -hmm. people. Well, I have called him Don Alvaro because he is, in fact, a nobleman with a Spanish father and an Incan mother. But again, we learn that later on. But yeah, that is part of the problem. Well, she hesitates. Because her heart is, you know, she's confused. What do you do? I love my father. I love Don Alvaro. <laughs> and where do mm-hmm. I go? And I, and I think that hesitation's beautiful. She's human. She's not rebellious against him. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too. Kura, her, her maid, really brings her back to reality a little bit, too, by saying, see what you're risking versus what Don Alvaro is risking. That yes. If this doesn't work out for you, your dad is going to be mad. But Don Alvaro is risking death for you. He's risking being hanged. And that is what really inspires her to, to fight back and say, okay, well, you think I don't care enough. And then we get this lovely aria where she really expresses that she does truly love him and I think makes us see her character in, in that light. Mm-hmm. 
that was Leonora in La Forza del Destino by Giuseppe Verdi. And she's concerned, but she's determined she will say farewell to her homeland, as hard as that is to be with the man that she loves. And I have a little interesting tidbit about the words from this aria that she sings. The text actually was written by another one of Verdi's collaborators, librettist, by Soma. Soma was the librettist for A Masked Ball. And Soma was also the librettist that Verdi had chosen to write the never completed, but much worked on King Lear. Verdi loved Shakespeare, loved Shakespeare, thought he was just the best. He's an amazing dramatist, we all know, and Verdi appreciated everything about Shakespeare. His final two operas are Shakespeare-based operas, and he really wanted to do King Lear. Can you imagine if we had that? There was a completed libretto Soma had done, and the words for Leonora leaving her father come from an aria that Soma had envisioned Cordelia saying Mm -hmm. when she is leaving the house. I found that just a fascinating little piece of information. Yeah, that is fascinating. I mean, we were just saying, torn between love for a father and and love for a future husband. It's the same story, really. Well, that's why it fit. (laughs) (laughs) So she's torn. And one of the best entrances ever onto stage happens next. Well, Don Alvaro shows up. He bursts through the window. Right. <laughs> well, it depends on the production, but yes, he's there. He's going to take her. They're going to elope. There he is. Yeah. I mean, that, that's how it's written in the original. Okay. Mm. He's got to do it in a dramatic way. He couldn't just walk in the front door. No, no. Navarro comes in with all his passion and beauty and his love for her. Yeah, it's an exciting moment. It is because there's none of the warming up moment. He just comes in and he's full of ardor. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. And tenor confidence. It's true. It's, it's, it's interesting that we meet these two lovers when the courtship has already happened. That's a little yeah. bit unusual. Right. A lot of stories you see the courtship, like Romeo and Juliet, you see them meet, you see them kiss for the first time. You see the balcony scene much later. We're right there at not only the middle, but in some sense, the, the later half of their courtship. They're ready to get married and, and about to potentially experience some tragedy together. Oh my gosh. And even so, you'd think they'd love each other clearly, but she is hesitant even now with him in the room with her, maybe even more so hesitant. And she, she begs him for another day with her father before they leave. Yes. And just to be clear, he's not just planning to run off with her. He lets every one of us know that their <laughs> priest is waiting yes. to marry them and have this yes. officially yes. sanctioned by God. Do this the right way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He meant no dishonor here. He is, he is a man of great honor. And that actually will be an issue as, as we move along. But 
it's, a, it's an amazing scene and his passion is so great, but her hesitancy, because he's a man of honor, the hesitancy that she shows has an effect on him. Sure, because he's, he's laying everything out for her. He, it's, he's, he's all in. Yeah, but does he bully her? Hey, you made an agreement with me. No, I mean, he just is, he's just hurt immediately. He just sort of is like, well, I'm breaking up with you. Yeah. Yeah. I release you from your bonds. I mean, it's just, this is such drama. I mean, it's only in opera. Could you live at the heights of like every sentence? It's the most dramatic version of, of it. It's right. Yeah. He's not, oh, let's have a casual conversation where we, we talk about our future. It's, I release you. <laughs> That's that's so so operatic. That's why we love it. That's why we love them. Heightened everything. Yes. Well, that snaps her back into like, oh, oh, uh, I guess what I'm saying is pretty serious. And she then finally, after hesitation, after hesitation, and the maid is getting more and more concerned with this delay. Mm-hmm. The she... maid is always the one who's practical in these situations. Always. Well, She's our first glimpse of what we're going to see more and more and more of in this show, which is that the the common folk, mm-hmm. you know, not the Dons and Donnas, but the common folk are very present. And there is sort of a practical element to how they are going about the business of life and living. Mm-hmm. We'll see it in a tavern. We'll see it on the battlefield or, or in a camp near the battlefield or with monks. But here you get just in it in one individual, not the whole chorus, somebody being practical and not extreme and everything. And honestly, she had a point. Yes, because immediately after she says, hey, guys, check your watches. <laughs> and she's like, I hear them coming up the stairs. And then Don Alvaro is like, well, we got to get out of here. Mm. But it's too late. And Leonora's father bursts in in a rage His sword is drawn. He's got his servants behind him. And he immediately accuses Don Alvaro of seducing his daughter, which, of course, is going to rankle the honor of Don Alvaro. (laughs) Right. And Don Alvaro says, it's not her. She's totally innocent. She's completely pure. And he, he, by the way, he's pulled out his gun because he's offered to kill himself, right, already because of her lack of love for him. It's drama, drama, drama. But he, he... he submits to the father. He says, mm-hmm. you, you may kill me. And he's like, I won't sully my hands with, with dealing with a low life. I'm a man of honor. I would only handle a man of honor that way. And you are not that. Mm-hmm. Don Alvaro protests. I will not submit to your ruffians. Only to you, sir. Yeah. And he continues to say, I'm going to prove the purity of your daughter. Then says, I will disarm myself to show that I am submitting to you. Well, the great, the great accident happens. The gun goes off and kills the father. Yeah, he tosses <laughs> it down. As an act of submission. And the chances of it, I mean, you talk about the fate, of course, the chances <laughs> of it actually not only hitting the father, but killing him is just... Of course. It it could, of course, of course. He was actually saying, here, I'll, I'll disarm myself. I'll put it down. I submit. And then the gun kills him, basically. Yeah. But he doesn't die instantly. This is opera after all. No, of course. <laughs> you, you, can't, you cannot die instantly. You've got to sing, you know. <laughs> and you have to have just enough breath left in your body to curse your only daughter for, for this happening to you. You have to curse her. And in the real way, with a lot, and you've got a couple of higher notes that take a lot of air pressure. 
So you really do have to not quite die instantly. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Oh, our poor oh. lovers. What a way oh, to end Act One. Oh my gosh, there they are. The other thing that's so painful is we know his intentions, Don Alvaro. Mm-hmm. We know his heart. He's like, I, she's honorable. I, I'll, I'll prove it to you. I'll, I'll lay down my weapons. I'll, I'll do anything. Yet this tragedy happens and the father curses her. It's just so awful. Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by guest co-host Kathleen Vandewill. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am here with co-host Kathleen Vandewill. Hello, everyone. And special guest, Lisa Reagan. Lisa, welcome back. Hello. Thank you so much. Well, as we mentioned before, Lisa is a very accomplished musician, the creator of this wonderful album that we featured in the first half, What We Need Is Here. But she has a long history of singing opera and creating music in a variety of genre. And we're so thrilled to have you here today, Lisa, to talk through La Forza del Destino by Giuseppe Verdi. I'm happy to be here to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And before we carry on with any more of our opera discussion, I'd like to just take a moment to thank the people who were involved with creating the CD that we've been listening to, the excerpts. The recording for this CD was made in 1985 with the Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by Giuseppe Zinopoli with the Ambrosian Opera Chorus with Chorus Master John McCarthy, Don Alvaro, sung by Jose Carreras, Donna Leonora, sung by Rosalind Plowright, Don Carlo, her brother, is Renato Brusson, Preziosila, that's the fortune teller that we're going to meet shortly, that's Agnes Balza, Father Guardiano, is Pata Bucciolade, Apologies for pronunciation mistakes. And Brother Melitone is Juan Pons. And the father, poor man who died from the gunshot early on, that's John Tomlinson who sings that part. And I'll just point out that Father Guardiano, whom we haven't met yet, and the Marquis of Calatrava, Leonora's father, are sometimes, they're both bass roles, and they're sometimes, in fact, sung by the same person. So 
At this time, we pretty much always do the opera helmet quiz, wherein we sum up the action in the opera thus far. Well, the main action that we had in the very beginning was a nice discussion of Lisa's work and her album, What We Need Is Here. You can always go to lisareagan.com to learn a lot about that album and listen to it. But Kathleen, can I ask you to bring us up to date on this first act of the opera? And it's a really long opera, four hours if you go to the opera house and have the intermissions and everything. But people refer to Act One as one of the tightest acts in all of Verdi. We stretch out a bit as we move along in the story. But what's <laughs> happened so far? So Act One is, is our love story in a nutshell. So we meet Donna Leonora, the beautiful soprano, and her father, the Marchese de Calatrava. And she loves her father. She's, she wants to honor him, but he does not approve of her choice of lover. That lover is Don Alvaro, who is trying to persuade her to run away with him, even though her father doesn't approve. She is trying to be a good daughter, but she's torn between her love for her father and her love for Don Alvaro. So she decides after some hesitation that she's going to run away with Don Alvaro. But just as they're about to run away, they hesitate too long <laughs> and her father discovers them. And although Don Alvaro tries to resign his weapon, and prove that he has not tampered with the innocence of her, her honor and her virginity. As he's trying to put the weapon down, it goes off, the gun goes off and shoots her father and he dies cursing Leonora and everything ends in tragedy and chaos. And that's only act one. And we've got three more acts to cover. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to have to step it up here. And there is a lot of drama to come. Act two opens. It's about 18 months later. I know this from reading notes. And it's semi-clear in the production, usually, but time has elapsed. The notes tell us it's about 18 months that have transpired between Act One and Act Two. In that time, in the chaos of the, the death of Leonora's father, the two lovers have been separated, and they don't know where to find each other. But we open not on the lovers, not on a scene of the family. We open with a boisterous scene in the inn. You were in that boisterous scene at some point, weren't you, Lisa? I was. I was singing my heart out, <laughs> being a great, I don't know, maybe serving someone a beer or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember that far back. What's going on in that scene? Well, I mean, it's the people that are in the inn, the townsmen. Like you said, Leonora and Alvaro were separated. I think they think each other's dead. The town mayor was there, and then there there was just townspeople. And uh, Leonora's brother, Don Carlo, is there. Oh, critical character, yeah. Critical character. He enters because he's bent on avenging his father's death. That's all you can think about. Yeah. He can't get past it. And then Don Carlo is disguised as a student. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's in disguise, hoping to root out his sister, Don Alvaro, either of them. He's because he's sworn to kill them both. And it's really mm -hmm. interesting. He is disguised as a student in this scene. And there will be a point in this scene where he sings a song about being a student and helping his friend search after the sister and her lover in order to take revenge. He wants to help his friend do that. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Interestingly, that in the original play, 
there actually was a student who was singing about this stuff. But in opera compression world, they just go ahead and make the brother pretend to be the student for a short while because he's he's snooping around. He's nosing around and asking the mayor, asking the tavern keeper, mm-hmm. what about this one person who doesn't seem to be mixing with the rest of us? Of course, that's Leonora. And she's mm-hmm. seen her brother, but she's hiding. He does not see her. Yeah, everybody's in disguise. He's in disguise as a student. She's in disguise as a man, too. That's right. We don't really know how long she's been in disguise as a man, but considerable time, probably. That's how she's been avoiding detection. Because it seems like she is also hiding from her brother. Even though her brother is trying to find her lover, she's also hiding from him. So everybody is is not who they seem right now. Yes, and there's one person who's figured out the truth of the matter. The fortune teller. Yes, Preziosila. She is quite the character in this show. She is. She tells fortunes and she seems to be the life of the party from what I can tell. <laughs> and she's, she's trying to recruit them to the cause of Italian nationalism too. She's, she's uh, singing of the glories of going to war for your country. Yeah, even though we are in a village in Spain at this point, she's trying to get everyone to up and help out the Italians, because they are involved in the Austrian War of Succession in the mid-18th century at this point. And in fact, Spain did help out Italy. And she's like a recruiting officer almost and a, a cheerleader. Hurrah for war, <laughs> she sings. It's, it's really a fascinating, feels sort of jarring after the first act, honestly. Yeah, I think it does feel jarring. You're taken into a, di- a totally different world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of some of the other things I was talking about before, like the, you know, War and Peace or Hunchback or any of the Dickens novels where you have sort of these two registers going on. You've yes. got this like love story between these two characters and then you have some maelstrom going on, whether it's a war, a, a local conflict or something like that, that's kind of taking up the attention. And that's always mm-hmm. way almost more interesting because those scenes are bigger and full of people and um, reminds me a little bit of, almost of Carbon to some of those scenes that... Yeah kind of steal the show is you want to stay in the inn with those people. <laughs> yes, for sure. You do. You do. You want to join their band in mm-hmm. and sing that incredible quintet. Al son del tamburo, al brillo del consiero, al nudo azuro, del bronzo guerriero, di campi al susuro, se salta il versiero. This this woman who's the fortune teller and rallying everyone to be patriotic and to help fight for freedom, she is the one who's who's essentially giving the message, like, listen, people, enough of your little dramas. This is real. Freedom. Mm-hmm. 
go to war, win glory that way, and don't worry about all these little things. And by the way, sir, whoever you are, you are not a student. You're not who you say you are. And he's a little shocked that because he's so smart, of course. <laughs> but he's called on to say grace before they eat their meal, which he obliges by doing. He's well educated. He can do the, the grace in Latin. And then in an interesting contrast to everything that's going on, we have a little bit of a somber intrusion in this scene with a group of pilgrims who are passing through. Yes. And, and this is how we get Leonora in this scene. She is on pilgrimage herself, dressed as a man, but she's seeking refuge at this hermitage monastery convent. It seems like they kind of have one of each together. And that's what she is trying to escape from the world into a hermitage. And so she sees and hears her brother in the inn because these pilgrims are, are passing through. But yes, you're right. It is like a another jarring interruption of this sort of martial song. Mm -hmm. And then you have this more plain chant. The pilgrims come in, speaking of, of God. Mm -hmm. an interlude where everyone is respectful and joins in devotional type singing but it doesn't last <laughs> once once the pilgrims are gone they go back to what they were doing in the end one important thing to note among all of these these many voices and we have the different levels we have the townspeople we have the the pilgrims passing through is that leonora has been listening in the background to all of this and so everything that we hear, she hears. And one important piece of information she hears is her brother implying that Don Alvaro, well, saying that he's alive, but also that he's sailed to the West, that, he, that he's gone away. And she has been unsure if he's even been alive at this point. But the fact that he's alive is sort of swallowed up by the fact that she feels like he's abandoned her, that he's stopped looking for her. And sailed across the ocean. Yeah. Right. And, and, is, and is beyond her reach, beyond her brother's reach. And so really determines to continue on her course, which is to become a hermit, to become a nun, basically, um, and withdraw from the world. Yes. Although she doesn't seek to become a nun, she seeks to withdraw from society, not in a convent. She actually goes and knocks on the door 
of a monastery. And that is our next scene, very different from the noisy, boisterous tavern. And she emotes like crazy for quite some time. And this is a beautiful soprano opportunity to sing her heart out and share how she's feeling. I mean, Lisa, what can you tell us about what what the soprano is going through here? Well, there's, of course, again, the the emotions are so heightened that her heart is broken. (laughs) She's trying to beg for refuge. She knows her brother's still wanting to kill her. And she doesn't want to be in the world anymore. And in Verdi's fashion, he writes these long, beautiful lines for the soprano. Well, for every for everyone, but in this particular aria, she she sings the the bottom notes are very low for soprano. So this type of singing takes a spinto soprano or a dramatic soprano that has a lot of bottom to their voice. So when she goes down to those low notes, they're so heart wrenching. You feel it's like coming from her gut and you feel this pain that she's going through. Yet he stretches all the way up to the top of the soprano's register with these glorious high notes that, again, take us into her heart and we know what she's feeling. I mean, that's what I feel when I hear this aria. But it, it again, it takes that kind of soprano that has kind of uh, the weight of her voice can be taken all the way to the high notes, if you, if you know what I mean. So the high notes are not are not thin, you know, they have mm-hmm. all this body to them, which makes it even in a way more dramatic, I think. So I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the soprano voice and the varieties of the soprano voice, because you mentioned the spinto, and that's your mm-hmm. that's your area. That's my area, yes. It's just a heavier voice a lot of times. Well, for a spinto, there's a big voice. You have to kind of always work the top of your voice a lot. I mean, technically speaking, you have to just always be above it or the voice of, and this is all technical stuff, but the voice will fall down and get too weighty. And if a voice gets really weighted, sometimes it can develop a wobble. I don't know if you've ever heard someone that has ah, like a wobble, that's too much weight on the voice. So it has to stay, the positioning of the sound has to stay up higher above the palate in the what is called the mask. And it it takes it takes strength and work. It takes um, strength in your. Is it, you have to be very strong to sing like Verdi and Puccini. <laughs> you, you're making it sound very athletic. It is very athletic. It is indeed very athletic. If you look at um, just next time you see um, a Verdi soprano, just look at how strong her neck is. Ah, just take a glance. You'll see. And um, they're usually not really tiny women. Uh huh. They usually have more. They're just not tiny. Uh, now, a, a little soubrette soprano sings very, very high. She would sing a laughing song. That's usually a very small person. And those are usually young roles. Is that right? Well, they, they can be young roles. Yeah. Traditionally, yes. So a lyric soprano is a very common voice. It sings a lot of um, Mozart, this type. But a lyrico spinto is the heavier voice, which is usually sung for Puccini and Verdi and Wagner. Okay. Wagner is often sung by a dramatic soprano. Mm-hmm. And if you hear, like for me, I, I felt like I was, when, this, when I was young, I was singing a lot of Mozart, and it felt a little bit hard for me, even though I was singing like Orgi Amor, arias that I could sing, but it felt kind of hard. I remember when I first sang Verdi, I thought, oh, this is so great. 
because I can lean into it. That's fascinating. I can open up and like not have one foot on the pedal on the, the go and the brake. You know, it's like accelerator and the brake. Because when I was singing Mozart, I often felt like that. Like I had to be so careful to stay in line. And Verity, it felt like I could let the horse run free. Wow, that's a beautiful image. <laughs> that's what it feels like. <laughs> and so where does bel canto fit into all these descriptions? Well, bel canto is mostly a lyric soprano. I mean, it's beautiful singing, isn't it? Right. That's what bel canto means. So I think it's a lot about what opera used to be very much about was the beauty of the sound. So it wasn't until later that operas became more dramatic and more about the acting and more about the story. Yeah. And then Verdi, he wrote notes that sounded almost ugly for character, for the, for that pure raw emotion of it. He wanted that to be expressed. And so it wasn't always so beautiful. I mean, sometimes, uh, especially some of the sopranos, they'll go down to these bottom notes and it sounds so raw. And I, I mean, that's what's cool about it. Yeah, that, that carries a a punch emotionally. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for explaining all that. I, I mean, I'm sure we could okay. go on and on, but the story awaits. But thank you. Thank you. Well, let's hear a little bit of this song where she's asking the Virgin Mary to forgive her her sin. And Leonora is seeking refuge as she's outside this monastery. In a dark place. She thinks that her brother's trying to kill her. She thinks her lover has has left her for good. And the only thing that she can cling to is her faith. And so we've seen her with these pilgrims. She has arrived now at a monastery. And, and Pat, you had mentioned, I had I was saying she was um, going to become a nun, but you're right that it's it's interesting she's not trying to become a nun. She's actually trying to become I guess what we would have called like an anchoress. Uh, she's trying to become a female hermit. Yes. She's trying to mm -hmm. 
enclose herself in a cave and basically never talk to anybody ever again until she dies. Because she knows she's heard that there's this cave nearby, this monastery. Right. And right. she's she's heard some, like, a, she, she mentions sort of briefly another woman that she's heard of who did this before. So she's going to devote herself to ultimate solitude for the rest of her life in penitence. And so she's very happy. She feels at peace that she's arrived here and, and made this decision. And at the gate at the monastery, she's received by a brother, Fra Melitone. He is very suspicious and a little surly, I would yes. say, with her. It's the middle of the night. He says, I don't know who this person is that's come to the gate. <laughs> and she says, oh, I can't come inside, but I do want to speak to your abbot. And he says, well, are you, are you an excommunicant? So what's, what's wrong with you? And he's very caustic with her. Yeah. But eventually he does permit her to meet the abbot, Padre Guardiano, and she confesses her true identity to him and reveals herself because he is a, a much more sympathetic, fatherly figure, really. I mean, he's the father of the monastery and he sort of acts in a, in a fatherly way. Gravitas, he has, he's a base, of course. Yeah, of course. And he has great <laughs> dignity and clearly a man of strong mm -hmm. faith and also compassion. Mm -hmm. And he accepts her decision to become a hermit, but he also is very clear with her about what that life will be like and the trials she'll have to undergo. And there's almost a sense here of like a fall to adventure in sort of a Joseph Campbell myth kind of sense. <laughs> like he puts, he's like, you're going to go have to go through these different trials in order to achieve spiritual purity again. But she is undeterred. It's fascinating. Before he accepts her as a hermit nearby the monastery, he does say, shouldn't you be in a convent, sweetheart? Mm -hmm. And she... <laughs> goes nuts when he suggests that. She says, I will do all these terrible things to myself if that happens. It's That is, that is mm -hmm. simply not an option. And it never made sense to me when I watched this opera until I read about what happened in the play, where it's a little more obvious that the connection between the story that the quote-unquote student in the opera's case tells about her story, you know, she references in the opera, oh, my story is being told. But she basically says, I can't go become a nun because all the girls will be laughing at me. They'll all know my story. They'll all mm. think I'm completely disgraced. Mm -hmm. I would hope nuns wouldn't do that. But, you know, but that's not in the <laughs> opera. And honestly, it makes the whole thing make a little more sense for me. I can I, I get it better yeah. than her just saying, well, I'm going to pitch a fit if you don't let me do this. But yeah, he's compassionate. He can see she's determined. Mm -hmm. I saw it in the opera as more in the same vein of that sort of has to be the worst of the worst. Like she can't just become a nun. She has to become an anchoress. She has to become yeah. a hermit. She has to push it to the extreme yep. and deny herself even the company of other nuns. And what makes me sad is that she really didn't do anything wrong. I mean, think about it. She just loved. She loved her father. She probably loved her brother. We don't know, but I'm sure she did. And she loved Don Alro, and all she'd ever did was really love. Yeah, she's yeah. another one of the long line of suffering women in opera, honestly. She really is. Absolutely. And she also keeps up this disguise and, and masculinity, or sort of hiding in masculinity by deciding to, to be a hermit because she reveals her identity and her gender to the father, but nobody else, I think, really 
is aware and she's she's entering a male role, like being a hermit. It was really in this time period, women just basically didn't do it. And so she's hiding out sort of, she wants to unsex herself, I think, in mm-hmm. a way to, to use a nice Shakespearean term. Yeah. So she is told by the father that he will bring her food, but she can only ask for any other company or assistance if she is in great danger or if she's on the point of death. And there's a bell outside the cave that she can ring. This act closes with the monks praying that she will be able to accomplish this this new life. Yeah. Okay. End of act two. Act three. We're in Italy now. Why are we in Italy? Well, the scene goes to Don Alvaro. Yes. And he is, he's joined the army. So he's sort of done, I guess when, when a woman has to run away from her life, she joins the yeah. church. And when a man has to run away from his life, he joins the army um, <laughs> in this time period. Yeah. And, and I, we haven't, I guess we haven't really like explicitly said this, but obviously this opera is 1860s is premiere, but it's set in the 1740s. Yes. So when we're talking about hermitages and wars and things like that, that's really the time period we're talking about. And he is going to find himself smack dab in the middle of a real historical event that happened. Right. Part of the War of Austrian Succession. Exactly. Mm -hmm. When they're trying to throw off the Austrian overlords, which, uh, yeah, takes some time. So uh, Alvaro is, he thinks that Leonora is dead. And that is what has, has caused him to really join the army. And he is also living under a different name. So he is, he's not pretending to be a woman, (laughs) but he is pretending to be a different person named Don Federico. And he has created not only this new name for himself, but a real, a new persona. And he is respected in the army and he is known for being brave and has a great friend in the same regiment who is named Don Felix, but is actually Carlo. And of course, they become friends because Don Avro saves his life. So everybody is under a different name. No one is who they are still, even though we're all the way in Act 3, um, which sets up, you know, if this were a farce, it would set up some hilarious slapstick comedy later on. <laughs> but it's a tragedy. So Yes, and we're going <laughs> to listen to this friendship duet they sing. But I'll just let everyone know that before... They come together and swear eternal friendship. We do get Don Alvaro alone on stage for a while where he sings about his unending love for Leonora and he thinks she has died. Right. So we have in the prior act, she believing that he has sailed away to another continent, South America, back to his homeland. And he believes she has died and and is really asking for her angelic protection. But what we're going to listen to now is a bit of this duet of friendship between these two men, one of whom has sworn to kill the other. But that's mm-hmm. under their real name, not under their assumed name. Of course. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
our tenor and our baritone, Don Alvaro and Don Carlo, under assumed names, have sworn eternal friendship. They are fighting on the same side. And wouldn't you know, the army has shown up and there's a battle and a really clever bit of stagecraft here. (laughs) The battle doesn't take place on stage. There's a guy who's on stage looking sideways off stage, describing what's happening in the battle. So there's a battle and you get all of the, the drama in the music of a battle but we're not seeing the battle. We're just hearing it described to us. The upshot of this battle, as far as this story is concerned, is that Alvaro is terribly, terribly wounded. And his new best friend, Don Carlo, pulls him in and brings him to the medic, the surgeon, to see if his life can be saved. He's badly wounded and and Alvaro believes he's going to die. Yes. And He turns to his friend in this moment in his last request or what he thinks his last request will be is to take a casket of letters that he has. He gives them the key and he says, open this and just burn what's inside. And you have to swear to me that you will not read them. And of course, implication here is these are love letters between Leonora and Mm -hmm. Alvaro and his his he's kept them all this time. But his friend says, of course, you won't die. Yeah. And he even says, you're going to get this honor, this honor that's named. And he, he says the name of Calatrava, his family name. And he sees that Alvaro winces at this name, Calatrava, but doesn't really focus on it in this moment. But a light bulb goes off when he hears the name. Yeah. Yeah. The light bulb does go off. He hears it and it, it's going to eat at Don Carlo, the, the angry brother, for a while. But before any further action is taken, there's going to be one of the duets. People often talk about the importance of the baritone and tenor duets in this opera. Well, I think in all Verdi operas, he does these incredible duets between the baritone and the tenor. It's usually at the height. It's about some type of either camaraderie or or fight or some resolution, or it's something heightened in the story in that moment that usually they're singing about. And here it's pretty, it's pretty dramatic because he thinks he's going to die, Alvaro. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's notable to me that more so than other operas I've seen, the two male friend characters who are singing this duet spend far more time together than the lovers do. Yeah. And you really get this sense that although this love for, for Leonora is in his heart and it, it's almost not... It's, it's not really a part of his real life anymore. It's more like a story he tells himself. He thinks mm-hmm. that he will never see her again. But what's concrete is his friendship with this man who, who he doesn't really know who he is, but he thinks that he does. And they form this strong friendship in the heat of battle. And throughout the rest of the opera, it almost reads like that's the love story. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think poor Leonora gets kind of shunted to the side, even even at the end, which we'll see the true climax is a duel between these two people rather than a reunion between the lovers. Yes, that's a great point. <laughs> that is exactly what happens. Yeah. We've got a few moments where Don Carlo is going to be thinking aloud to us while the medic is helping Don Alvaro, and he's going to think through, why did he... Blanche at Calatrava. Why did he? Why did that startle him so? It, oh no! Could he possibly be the illicit lover of my sister? <laughs> well, there's only one way to find out. I have <laughs> letters here. Wait, no, can't open them. I'm a man of honor. 
oh no, I'm a man of honor. Nope, I am a man of honor. It's it's a wonderful <laughs> progression that he goes through. But he decides there must be another way. And of course, there was another way. Yeah, so when he opens the box, her portrait is in there. So he doesn't even have to open the letters. It's just sitting there for him to find. It's just sitting there for anyone to find. Yeah, so I... As much as this is a, a lovely story, it's a bit of a stretch that he thinks that his friend who's been mortally wounded, you know, flinches at a single name in the middle of probably a lot of other flinching at pain. Um, I, you know, perhaps, perhaps Don Carlo is just a very suspicious man. One wonders how many other guys he maybe thought were yeah, good his, point. Um, his mortal enemy, but he is proven right in in the grand tradition of opera. He is proven his suspicions are proven right, and he vows, of course, that he has to avenge his father's death, and and really exults that even though it's his friend, he's happy that he's found him, and also happy that his friend is going to survive, which he finds out because just at this point, he's upset, like this guy's dying. I'm a man of honor. This is not working out neatly. The medic comes in, the surgeon comes in and says, ta-da, I've saved him. And though well, that was fast. <laughs> uh-huh. And this is where he shouts, oh, great joy, he is saved. Now I can kill him. <laughs> right. Which is just this amazing moment. You know, you, you read this and you think, gosh, where were the therapists back then? They <laughs> I just, know. <laughs> they had no counseling. They had no one to turn to. No. Oh, my goodness. No one to turn to and no cell phones to no find cell your phones. lost lover. No, um, no antidepressants. Yeah. You know, no. But it makes for a great story. <laughs> right. This is one of many stories that if it were said in modern times would never have happened. That's correct. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So true. And then we go from this intense drama, life, death, brothers in arms, and we have the chorus again. We have this commotion of camp life, the army camp, and you have all these characters who have come over from Spain. And they are now in Italy. There's an economy of players going on here in terms of an opera production, for sure. But when Preziosila shows up, as you would expect, she's encouraging the fighting men to continue on with their battle. Remember the glory. Remember what matters. You're fighting for freedom. I'm proud of you boys. Keep it up. (laughs) She's quite the cheerleader. this is happening with Preziosila and the sort of martial chorus, we also have, plot-wise, Alvaro has recovered enough that Don Carlo comes to him and confronts him and basically says, I looked at the picture, I know what's going yeah, on. Interestingly, he's, he first asked like two different ways. Are you feeling well? Are you all healed? Are you better? <laughs> right, because he doesn't want to duel with a man who's not he's a man well. Of honor. Um, 
Exactly. They're all men of honor, except they're all also trying to kill each other. (laughs) And so once he establishes that his former friend is well enough to duel, he says, do you have any enemies that would want to duel with you? And that's how he kind of hoaxes him into this moment where he reveals, I know who you are. And then they begin to fight. And poor Alvaro, of course, doesn't want this because he's, I think, kind of a good guy and not driven by revenge. And so he doesn't want to duel, but he's defending himself. And they are pulled apart by other soldiers because they are in the same regiment and you're not really supposed to try and kill your fellow soldiers. And Don Alvaro vows that he is going to get out of the army and he's going to go into a monastery that it's this is too much. (laughs) following his his beloved Leonora's tradition. And there's only one monastery in this world. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> this beautiful, this aria that Alvaro has, and sometimes the placement of this aria versus the end, the sort of martial chorus are switched. But one way or another, we can kind of say simultaneously, yeah. <laughs> he is singing of his his sorrow and Fra Meletone, who we remember from when he first gave Leonora a little bit of sass. <laughs> he is back and he is preaching to the soldiers and to the fortune teller and saying, you guys are, are are way too rowdy and you should be fighting for the Lord. This is the Sabbath. You should not be irreverent. And this speech that he gives, this sermon in a way, this is the bit that comes right from Schiller's play, Wallenstein's Lager. It's an Italian translation by Maffei, Verdi's good friend. And he pretty much just lifts it out and plops it into this scene because it, it works. I mean, it's amazing. You guys are more interested than bottles, than battles. And I came to Spain to bind wounds and save souls. And look at you. You're all just carousing. And I mean, what does he expect of army camp life? I mean, honestly. <laughs> but it, it at least brings us back thematically and character wise to somebody that we know from mm-hmm. the other story that's been going on. So Fra Melitone is, is back. We remember Leonora. And as Alvaro has decided, he must go to a monastery and we end act three with his, his decision. Yes. Or 
perhaps we end it with the Rataplan, which is the the martial celebration of war and the excitement of all that's been going on in Italy. opera for everyone and we are ready for the fourth and final act of Verdi's La Forza del Destino. I'm here with Kathleen Vanderwill and Lisa Reagan. Well, we are back in Spain. We are back at the monastery and five years have passed since we were last in Act 3 in Italy. We're going to open again with a choral scene by the monastery Part of what monasteries did is provided charity and support for the people of the surrounding lands. And it's an interesting scene because, again, there's, there's a bit of chaos going on, but it's not carousing this time. It's, it's people in need. And you've got a, a sassy a Father Melitone there, not, not being gentle and loving and supportive, but he is there passing out food. It's, it's, it's an odd little scene, but it does give a feeling of contrast and grounding in reality of what life was like for people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also the, the costs of war, probably, you can probably make that connection that this is sort of the aftermath of the sort of martial last act. And while we meet all these beggars, one that they speak of very kindly not Melatone, but um, mm-hmm. Father, a Father Raphael. And we learn that that is Don Alvaro with another mask on. Yes, yes. I think we know instantly when they start speaking about this kind, gentle, compassionate man, we're like, that's got to be Alvaro again. Mm-hmm. And he's taken the name Raphael, Father Raphael. They all love Father Raphael, which really annoys Melatone. He's like, yeah, well, he loves you so much that he's not here. I'm here. I also love how the beggars are like, yeah, he's the hot one. You know, he's the <laughs> yeah. one with the dark <laughs> eyes. <laughs> They're like, he's like, oh, we have two Raffaele's. One of them looks like a pig and the other one is dark and handsome. Which one do you like? <laughs> uh, there's some humor in this scene. Maybe it's like, that's what it's for. It's a little bit of comic relief. I, w- I just went back to a memory. I remember being in this scene and I remember they they gave us some, it was like oatmeal because he was passing out. Basically, we had our little bowls. We were getting oatmeal. And I remember the I, you're not supposed to eat the oatmeal, <laughs> but, but I did. And then you try to sing. And it was just like, they're like, don't eat the oatmeal. It just, it, I was just laughing to myself. About that you're, just a, you're a method <laughs> opera singer. <laughs> oh my God. I feel like I'm starving. I oatmeal. have to eat the oatmeal. <laughs> It'll feed us here. <sighs> I love that. That's got to, oatmeal can't be good for the vocal cords immediately. No, that's a terrible idea. No, they were like, don't eat it. It was just, okay, anyway. <laughs> well, well, when when oh, Don Carlo shows up, not hiding his name as far as I know, yes, he wants to see Father Raphael. He has spent five years tracking down Alvaro, and he's figured out that he is Father Raphael in this very monastery, the only monastery in this particular world, it would seem. <laughs> and and he's the one who has to say, no, I want the one with the dark eyes. Of course I do. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we're going to get another duet when they finally encounter each other. And it's a fascinating duet because Alvaro, who has taken the name Father Rafael, is trying to be at peace. He is trying to be calm. He is trying to be loving even to his enemy as he has been taught and he teaches others. But it's really hard with this Carlo guy. Yeah, and we get a reference again to what we talked about at the beginning. What makes him snap when they have this argument is that Don Carlo refers to him as a like a half-breed. He refers to his mother and his parentage. And that is what really makes him decide he will indeed duel with this man. And I'm not sure that we've been explicit about his mother. Because his mother was not just an Incan woman. She was an Incan princess. The last in the line of the royal house of the Incas. Mm -hmm. And so when the father who's sent over as a Spanish viceroy, he marries this Inca princess with the expectation that they can then rule not under Spanish authority, but then rule Mm -hmm. with independence. I mean, that's a little bit of the old Verdi shining through local Mm -hmm. independence. But it doesn't go well for those two, the the parents. In fact, Don Alvaro sings earlier on that he was born in prison and his parents, first they're sentenced to execution, it's commuted to life imprisonment. That's why he's ended up in Spain in the first place, because he's, he's looking for a pardon for his parents. None of it works out for any of them. But there he is. He's trying to maintain his dignity. He knows he's a man who's well born even though he hasn't been able to prove it to anyone else. But when his honor is questioned, he can't stay as Father Raphael anymore. The old soldier in him comes back out. The aristocrat comes back out.
splenda più che c'è Sangue il tinge di mulatto Per la gola voi mentite A me un brando, a me un brando, un brando Uscite another and we have a change of scene and finally after an act and a half we are back to leonora she is alone and she is in her cave in her refuge in her hermitage and she is still suffering i told you it's been five years and some other years before that for the other act and she sings this exquisite aria pace pace mio dio peace peace Oh, God. Lisa, talk to us about this exquisite soprano aria. It is so beautifully written. And it's an incredible aria to learn and to sing. For myself, it was one of my favorites. And I feel like even the high notes, the pianissimos are so passionate and so filled with so much pain. But the way Verdi writes, it's possible to do it physically. So Back to what she's singing about, she does talk about her misfortune, her curse, basically. Right. What the gypsy said from the beginning, and how really the only hope for her is to die. The only thing that's going to bring her peace is, is if she dies. So she's saying, cruel misfortune, I languish, I've suffered, I still love Alvaro, I, I don't want to live anymore. Please have mercy on me, God. And just... I can't express enough how beautiful this this aria is and how genuinely it's athletic to sing. It's it's challenging, it's difficult, but it's so satisfying. Mm.
about poor Leonora. As much as she wants it, though, I don't think peace is is in the cards for her. As we see that the two men that she has loved most in her life, who are still alive, her brother and her former lover, are dueling. We are with her as she wants peace, but she starts to hear this duel at the end of this aria. And we've obviously said this to some degree, but it's important to understand the proximity that Alvaro and Leonora have been in for the last five years. They have been within walking distance of each other without knowing. It's just heartbreaking, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Just can't catch a break. (laughs) So she is able to hear this, this clash of swords from her cave. And what has happened is... Alvaro, Don Alvaro, has mortally wounded Don Carlo, her brother. Yeah. And Alvaro runs into the hermit sanctuary because he wants his enemy to die sanctified, to have the last well, rites. Carlo asks for them. Your mm-hmm. father, Raphael, you can give me these last rites. And he says, no, I can't. No, I can't. But there's a hermit. I'll go get the hermit. I'll get the hermit. <laughs> I'm not a real monk. <sighs> Which I guess raises that question. Is he not a real, did he not actually take holy? Or maybe, who knows? But uh, so he goes into the hermit sanctuary and of course sees his lover, Leonora, and they recognize each other. And it's just this this terrible moment where you have to remember that they on stage haven't seen each other since the very beginning of the opera. Yeah. And so much time has passed. And Alvaro tells her what happened. And because of course, even in their reunion, He has killed another member of her family. So it's not like she can be happy about it for long, really. And and so she rushes out to see her brother who is dying and she bends over him. She's embracing him and her brother takes a knife and stabs her in the heart. The brother who believes they've been living together for the last five years or so, she continues to sin cause dishonor for the family. There is no forgiveness in his heart, no pity, no mercy, even for someone who's coming to give him last rites. She's stabbed and she's dying. Where do we go from here? Well, the the alarm bell that was mentioned before is ringing. She's rung this alarm bell to to draw the attention of the, the rest of the monastery. And so our good father comes to answer this and is on the scene to sort of try and give some sort of spiritual resolution or succor to the people who are dying. Leonora and, and Don Carlo, are, they're going to, to die. But we have this moment where, because there's been multiple versions of this yeah. opera, in some versions of the opera, Don Alvaro, in what I think is kind of a, a very Shakespearean way, he can't take the fact that he's killed this whole family. He's been responsible for their death. He blames himself, of course, for Leonora's death as well. So he kills himself. He rolls himself into the ravine. And that's the original ending that Verdi gave it for the Russian premiere Mm -hmm. in 1862. That was the ending that was in the book. But Verdi didn't really like that ending. He wanted to make it a little less dark. And it took him a long time Mm -hmm. to figure out how to make it less dark. Yeah. So, I mean, his answer to that is to make it more religiously inflected, honestly. He says the father superior is able to talk Alvaro out of killing himself in the new ending and says, you have to stop cursing fate. You have to be humble before the will of God. So that gets through to Alvaro and he believes himself to be spiritually redeemed because Leonora, as she's dying, blesses him and says, don't, she doesn't want him to kill himself. It's a slightly less dark, I guess, ending to 
to everything. And we end on a spiritual note, a, a note of hope and, and redemption. It's a tragedy. <gasps> yeah. It is indeed. Either ending, it's pretty, pretty, pretty dark, pretty rough for these poor people. It is. It is. And there's a, it's, it's interesting, this ending, one of the possible explanations that's given for Verdi landing on this as the solution, the long sought solution, by the way, of how to, to lighten somewhat this ending comes with an acquaintance that he makes with Alessandro Manzoni, who is the author of The Betrothed, I Promessi Sposi, uh, published in 1827, so before the Italian unification. And to this day, it's a great epic in Italian culture. It's one that every school child reads. The first time I heard of it, an Italian friend of mine said, what do you mean you haven't ever read this book? You must read this book. So I did that as an adult. <laughs> but there's a great through line of religious faith in this book. Yes. And Manzoni was heavily involved in, I believe, Italian unification efforts too. He was very political. And the plot of the betrothed is sort of a combination of, of that sort of political message about Italian unification and also more old medieval story, very similar to this one, where you've got these religious elements, you've got a wronged woman, you've got lovers that are kept apart. And yes, I, that's become kind of a classic of that era. And it, it, I did not know that they were friends, but it makes sense. Well, I'm not sure they were friends, but they did meet because it's through other connections they met. And when writing a letter, when Verity describes meeting Manzoni, he says, if a mortal man could be worshipped, I would have fallen down on my knees for this mm. man. And that, that is the kind of respect. And then the inspiration, we're to believe, that he took. And that's part of how he comes to resolution. I don't know if that's a true story or not, but it's one thought that's put forward. And certainly there's little pieces of evidence that make that plausible. Mm. But it is a more satisfying ending. I mean, he was not roundly celebrated in Russia when this first came out because the ending was so very dark so sad, so without any wow. redeeming. I mean, yeah, I know. Too dark for the Russians is, yeah, that's dark. <laughs> wow, that's really dark. <laughs> yeah, that's really dark. Yeah. Well, anyway, we've got, we've got everyone accounted for at the end here. And uh, it sounds like Brother Raphael mm. is going to continue to be adored by the country folk in the surrounding area. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, not a bad fate. I mean, if it, you yeah. know. Well, and and yeah. Leonora says she will wait for him in heaven. Don't rush, dear. I will wait for you. It's a very sweet. That is La Forza del Destino. And I would like to thank Kathleen. Thank you for joining me once again on Opera for Everyone. And special thanks, Lisa Reagan. Thank you for talking through this opera with us. And thank you for bringing your music to our attention and all your projects. Everybody, please go see her website. LisaReagan.com. There's so much good stuff there. And look her up on whatever service or record store that you might go to. Lisa, thank you. It's streaming everywhere. Excellent. <laughs> it was a, it was absolute joy to spend time with you talking about this beautiful opera and the inspiration that music gives us and how transporting it is for us as humans. It's a wonderful gift.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanduil. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera is for everyone. everyone.